Please pray with us uh, for that purpose. All right, at this time, we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to plow through 31 verses. 31 verses. This is uh, by far the, the most amount of verses I've ever gone through in my life. And I know I've said that a couple times in the series and, series and every time I was telling the truth. So this is definitely the most amount of verses I've ever gone through in one sermon. I'm the type of guy who would rather take one verse, like Romans 8.28, and build an entire 45-minute sermon off one verse. I don't like necessarily going through large chunks of Scripture because my uh, teaching style, it, it lends itself to great detail. But when you're doing large chunks of Scripture, you can't go detailed. And in addition, we have a, a bit of a narrative. It, it's a story that we're kind of encountering here in Mark 14, 1 to 31. So we're just going to start with the first two verses. But before we do that, let me pray and help us, ask God to help us rather, to focus and to pay attention that we might hear from Him this evening. So will you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up Mark chapter 14. Father, we thank you that it is uh, a beautiful telling of the first Lord's Supper. And we pray that you would help us to focus, to pay attention, open our eyes to see things we've never seen, open our ears to hear things we've never heard, give us a gripping attention, and Father, would you illuminate the text by your Holy Spirit? Would the gospel be clear and penetrating and mighty to save? As you've told us in your word, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. We pray that your gospel would be clear and powerful to save tonight. And would you in, encourage us who know this story well? May we see things we've not seen and may we be encouraged of this new covenant that we find ourselves in as the people of God, this side of the resurrection. Father, we thank you for your word and pray help us now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. And my, my friends are going to help me out here. They're going to start the timer uh, so I don't go like three hours, okay? So relax and let's get in, all right? Verse 14, 1 through 2. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing like I normally do. We're just going to read it as we go along. Now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth, stealth, and kill him. The him there is Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. All right, what's going on here? Well, it's two days before Passover. We know this as the Wednesday before Good Friday just to place it in the week that you're used to celebrating as an American. So Friday is Good Friday because Jesus goes on the cross and he dies and he's buried uh, before the Sabbath starts on, on that uh, evening. Now, something that's going to be helpful for you during this, um, these texts here, this message, is going to be you have to understand that our day as Americans starts at 12 a.m., midnight. That's the new day. Well, for the Jews in the first century, the day starts at 6 p.m. It's a new day. So the morning to them is actually 6 p.m. our evening. And that's going to help you uh, as we go through this, this text here. So it's Wednesday, two days before Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now the deal with this is, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day event. 
and it kicked off with Passover. Now you remember, Passover was that event that happened in Exodus when God was judging the Egyptian people for enslaving his people, the Jews, and he, through Moses, was saying to Pharaoh over and over, let my people go. And as Pharaoh hardened his own heart and as God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh refused through each of the plagues on Egypt and on Egypt's gods to let the people go. And so the tenth plague was one that would kill the firstborn of every house, even the animals. Unless, what? The blood of the lamb showed up on the doorposts of the house. And this would be the Passover lamb. And so the, the, the instruction from Moses went like this. You take a lamb and you kill it and you take that lamb's blood and you take a, a hyssop branch and you put it on the sides of the door and on the top of the door and when the death angel come came to introduce this plague the the blood would make the angel pass over that household and so wherever the blood of the lamb was found on the doorpost no one died in that home now let me show you real quick that this is an example of the gospel because one Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world quoting John the Baptist, his cousin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. The Lamb shows back up in Isaiah 53. He's the Lamb who was silent before its shearers. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in addition, we see salvation by grace through faith in the Exodus Passover as well, right? Because there's a substitute lamb that takes the place of the one who re should receive the judgment. The judgment, in this case, is the firstborn son. And those who trust or exercise faith in the words of Moses will actually kill the lamb, foreshadowing Jesus. And so faith is involved in killing the lamb. I mean, this had never been done before. And so Moses says, look, if you do this, you're going to be all right. And they're like, do we do it? Do we not do it? I mean, Moses is kind of crazy. Crazy things have been happening all over Egypt. For those who exercised faith in the word of God coming through Moses, they put the blood on the doorposts and on the top of the door. And there they received grace. They received grace non-judgment and the lamb died as a substitute in place of that firstborn but even a jewish person who refused to believe the words of moses who refused to heed the warning that household got judged too and so there's faith grace by faith is salvation here well this is what's being celebrated here now what, what about the unleavened bread thing well you remember God also through Moses told the Jewish people like look don't put leaven in your bread leaven is yeast it makes the bread rise and so he said you are gonna have to set aside bread don't put leaven in it because you're gonna have to rush out of here as soon as this Passover things over and you're gonna have to flee Egypt because the Egyptians are gonna kick you out they're going to make you leave and you're going to plunder them because I'm going to make them give you gold and silver and clothing and precious things as well. And so what happens is for seven days, they are supposed to eat this bread without yeast in it. And so it's a remembrance of this Exodus event. And so in this first century here, the Passover lamb is killed on Friday at the same time as Jesus is hanging on the cross 
No, no irony there, no mishap there, all purposeful. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would stretch out seven days. So that's what's going on here. It was now two days before Passover, starting the Feast of Unleavened Bread, stretching out seven days. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking something. What were they seeking? Now remember, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, these are, these are the ruling body of the Jews in the first century. And they are supposed to be the religious leaders. They're supposed to be leading the people towards worship of God and love of God. But instead, what are they doing? Ironically, they're seeking in stealth to kill God. Now, they don't know that he's God in the flesh, but literally this is what they're doing. They're seeking to be quiet about it, to be sneaky about it, to sniper him, if you will, from many yards away so they'll never be found. They want to sneak it, but they are trying to kill him. Why are they trying to sneak? Well, verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, why would there be an uproar from, from the people? Well, you remember a week prior to this, was Palm Sunday. And you remember Jesus rolls in on on a on an unridden donkey and and the people are praising Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes in and he overturns the tables and the money changers and he lets out the animals and there's this big raucous. And they wonder at this time is he going to take over is he going to set himself up as king? And so everyone is buzzing about Jesus. And the chief priests and the scribes know this. They understand the buzz about Jesus. And they understand that if they openly kill him, there's going to be riots. There's going to be an uproar. And you know what will happen? Rome will descend quicker than they can blink and wipe everything out. Now, here's what you need to know about this feast. This is one feast that would draw people from all over from different lands, just like Pentecost did. And the estimates are Jerusalem itself went from about 50,000 people to 250,000 people and some estimate into the millions. The high estimates are millions of people. So you can imagine how dense Jerusalem is during the Passover. I mean, it is just crawling with people. They're everywhere. And the chief priests and the scribes know that if we kill Jesus openly, there is going to be this massive riot and Rome will come in and they will destroy us and destroy our temple and put an end to us. Now, how do we know that's what they're thinking? Well, let me ask you a question. How how many of you have been in a crowd more than 100,000 people? One, two, just a few of you. Just, just for an idea, um, the, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the 100th Indy 500 drew a crowd of 350,000 people. Now, I'm not a lover of NASCAR, but certainly some people love it. <laughs> I mean, if you could draw 350,000 people to one event... That's almost like the low estimates of what was happening in Jerusalem. Okay, now here's an even bigger number. When the Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016, their parade rally drew 5 million people. 5 million people. Now, when you experience crowds that big or even 100,000 people, what do you see everywhere? Police, security guards, 
Those who are trying to keep the peace. Because if one thing goes wrong, people start stampeding and running and people die and, and people get hurt. So the, the scene here is the chief priests and the scribes know if we do this openly, there's going to be an uproar and the authorities, quote unquote the Romans, are going to put an end to us and we'll be done. We've got to do this stealthily. Stealthily. I love the way the ESV translates that. Now let's go verses 3 to 9. Verses 3 to 9. I'll read the whole thing. And while he was at Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, this is a scene that is further opened up for us in John's account. And so I want to show you real quick what John gives us, and then we can put the two pieces together. So John, in John 12, gives us this same account, verses 2 through 6. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So you remember the story just prior to this. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so presumably we're here at Bethany, which is where they resided. And Simon the leper, who is no longer a leper, Jesus healed him, I'm sure, or they wouldn't be hanging out with him. Uh, and, and so here's Simon the leper, and here's Martha, and here's Lazarus, and here's Mary also at this feast. And verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. So now we know who it was. It was Mary, the brother of Lazarus. Mary, the sister of Martha. Mary's the one who had this alabaster jar full of this really expensive ointment. And what did she do? Well, John gives us more detail than just his head and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, what Bible uh, authors often will do is they choose what detail to give us. And then sometimes if you're a skeptic, you might look at this account and say, oh, well, this says uh, her feet and, and the hair and the other one says his head. Which one is it? Well, it was both. It's just that Mark chose to leave out the feet and John chose to reveal the feet and leave out the head. Not a big deal. It's just more detail. So we can be thankful that in this account we get more detail than in the Mark account. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and I love how John parenthesizes here, he who was about to betray him, that Judas said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So here's Judas speaking up, outraged. He said this, now here's John telling us his motives. He said this not because he cared about the poor. Judas could care less about the poor people. 
Why then? But because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Wow. So here's the idea. You got 12 guys primarily walking around with Jesus. And no doubt you have Simon the leper. You have Mary, Martha, Lazarus. You have all kind of people following Jesus. But primarily the 12. And as they went, they needed money to eat and to sleep and to do various things. And who was in charge of the money? Who was the treasurer of the 12? Judas. And so when they would be walking along, Judas would probably find his way to the back of the line doing the moonwalk, and then he would just help himself. A little bit for me. What's that? Paying for bread? A little denarii for me. And, and he would just rob the disciples in Jesus. So his heart was never right. He, he never was a true disciple of Jesus. Yet the mercy and grace of our Savior, Jesus never treated him ill contemptly and even at the last supper when jesus says one of you is going to betray me they don't all look at judas like all the eyes don't turn to him and be like it's got to be him they're all like is it me is it me is it me judas was so stealthy in his thievery so slimy in the way that he acted like a disciple that no one could tell but surely jesus knew Every time he reached in the bag and took a denarii here and a denarii, Jesus knew it all along. And yet, sending him out with the twelve to do miracles and cast out demons and preach the gospel, all the while knowing that he was the one who would betray him. So here we get the details that Mark left out. One, that it was Mary from Bethany, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And that Judas is the one who is scolding. Why was this ointment wasted like that? Verse 4. Now, probably there were some other ones who were a bit upset too. right? Because it does say uh, there were some who said to themselves indignantly. So it was probably more than Judas, but most definitely it was Judas. Judas was concerned, not for the poor, but man, that's 300 days wage that I could be skimming that I could be pinching the bag, right? He, he is not concerned about the poor. He is concerned about himself. And so let's talk about what is happening in this scene. All right. Simon the leper has been healed by Jesus, and they're reclining at table. Now, now some of you know this, some of you don't. Reclining at table was the way that they ate in first century Jerusalem. So they would be leaned back like laying on the floor with feet out, resting on a pillow, not sitting at a table with, you know, fork and knife. Definitely not the Last Supper painting that's famous. It's not like that. They're rather just lounging backwards, kind of leaning on each other. In fact, uh, they, they would lean shoulder to shoulder and like talk to each other like this, you know. This was not in COVID days. And so they're able to like talk very close to each other. And, and so they're lounging, they're relaxing, they're, they're chilling at the table, and here comes Mary with an alabaster flask of, of ointment pure nard, very costly. Now, we don't understand how costly this is, so let me let you know how costly it is. The jar itself was costly. It was something of an heirloom that you would pass down from generation to generation, and the nard inside came from the Himalayas, believe it or not. Pure nard imported from India, made from the root of a plant grown in the Himalayas. The only way you could get this kind of perfume is if you knew somebody and it was imported. And look how much money it would have cost. 
300 denarii. Friends, that's a year's wage. Now you imagine for you, everybody in this room has a different year's wage. Some of us six figures, some of us five, some of us probably four, depending on how you know, wealthy we are. But imagine you, a year's wage in this little bottle. And it is relative because for her, it was a year's wage. So imagine you, you have this year's wage and you have it inside this precious container that was very rare. And what does she do? She breaks it and pours it over his head. This, this is showing something here of Mary's absolute love and devotion to Jesus, that she was willing to sacrifice this much for him. And you can see why they're outraged. They're like, this is crazy. This is extravagant. This is extreme. Why would you, why would you do this? I mean, isn't it more important that we sell this and give it to the poor if there was a non-Judas motive that actually cared about the poor? I mean, that's a year's wage, man. And Jesus, understanding something that the disciples always missed, and perhaps Mary had insight. Maybe she listened in a way that they didn't. Maybe the Holy Spirit revealed to Mary what the disciples still could not see. But Jesus said, verse 6, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. So their interpretation, indignant. Jesus' interpretation, beautiful thing. So friends, let me pause here for just a second and say to you this. When you make sacrifices for the sake of Jesus Christ, it is a beautiful thing. And He sees it that way. And there are costly sacrifices that must be made as a Christian, is there not? Now, I'm not just talking about giving your money through the website or, or giving your money to Compassion International or, you know, World Vision or something like that. We make sacrifices as Christians that the world simply looks at and says, I, I don't understand that. Why would you spend your emotional and psychological energy helping broken people? Coming away, drain yourself. Why would you make that sacrifice for the sake of Jesus? Because when I was broken and in emotional need and psychological need and most definitely spiritual need, Jesus gave all for me. So in return, how can I not sacrifice for Him? Hard friendships. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you know what hard friendships are like. Draining hard friendships. That you sacrifice, listen, for the sake of Jesus, work that is menial and seemingly meaningless, yet you remember to yourself, wait, a cup of cold water given in my name will not lose its reward. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it all to the glory of, of God. And so you sacrifice for the sake of Christ. And what is the, the word of Jesus to you? A beautiful thing. And then for some of you, you are financially, with money, very, very generous. And listen, if we compared Americans, even the poor among us, to the poor in other parts of the world, we are all very wealthy friends. I've been to more than one place that doesn't have running water. You can't go take a shower because there is no shower. You've got to go to the well to get drinking water and dishwashing water, etc., 
And so for you to just have plumbing that's clean, even if it does taste like chlorine before you Brita filter it, I mean, you have wealth beyond what you can imagine. I mean, I remember Megan and I went to um, uh, the Western Caribbean in 2003 for our honeymoon. And we, we took this bus to this private island. It was so beautiful. But yet, on our bus ride through the jungle in the Western Caribbean, we saw people living in broken down buses with no electricity, with no running water, just an empty bus and little kids and families waving at the tour bus as it comes by. And I'm like, oh my gosh, people live in that. There's people all over the world who are, listen, way poorer than you are. And so we have Netflix, cable TV, Amazon, and I'm not hating on you for your Hulu account, but what I'm saying is you can watch the most wealthy on the planet and feel like you got nothing. House hunters, right? And you're like, wish I had two million to hunt a house. Wish I could go house hunting in Hawaii. You know, I can't do that. And so you feel like you got nothing. And the world owes you, right? Because there's people with more than you. Meanwhile, friends, how often do we compare ourselves to the most poor among us? How often do we compare ourselves to the most poor around the world? And so in that light, friends, let's be generous. As God has been so generous to us, and we're not even talking about spiritually generous. That's coming later. (laughs) But just as he's been so generous to us, let us be generous and give lavishly. And remember, you can't outgive God. It's all his anyway. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all the people in it. And so what we give, we actually only give of what he's given us anyway, even the breath in our lungs. And so we would do well and we would be so much more thankful if we were more God-centered in our view of reality. What do you mean by that, Chris? I mean, if you understood the truth that everything is a gift, from the nap you get to take, from waking up from the nap you get to take, all gift. You go home tonight and maybe some of you will have spaghetti and some of you will have steak. Both gift. Seriously. And so when you have this view of the world, which is actually the true view of the world, you are a much more thankful person. You're not looking at the person grilling the steak and posting it on Instagram and saying, wish I could have steak. Must be nice. Meanwhile, you're thankful that you have some food to eat. We, we all on the same page here? All right, good. So what is Jesus' view of sacrifice for his sake, whatever the sacrifice. And I wanted to give you a wider variety than just giving money. In this case, it was a year's wage for the sake of Jesus. (laughs) That's serious. And though she gets scolded by the world, Jesus' view is, no, this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor among you. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the poor. The poor are always going to be around. It doesn't matter if you help them or not. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, The poor will exist until I come back and establish a new heavens and a new earth. But I will only be with you for a very, very short amount of time, and I am gone. They didn't realize how short it would actually be within that week. They didn't realize. They're blind to the reality of what is happening. But Jesus helps them. He helps them. What does he say? You will not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
Now, in those days, there was no embalming um, in, in first century Israel. And so what they would do is they would, they would pour very, very strong perfume over the body. And then they would also wrap it up with grave clothes. Uh, cloth, and they would put spices in the cloth as the body was being wrapped. And so here Jesus is saying, like, look, this is anointing for burial for me. She has done a beautiful thing. Now, just imagine this. Imagine this precious nard, remember, from India, from the Himalayas, filling the house. I mean, as soon as this alabaster jar broke, it was no longer to be used. It sacrificed the whole thing for you, Jesus. Not a little bit. I mean, even a little squirt of it would have been nice, right? Like in his hair and on his feet. Like we all would have smelled that. Would have been like, that was a great gift that you did there. But she's like, no, all breaks the alabaster jar in half and, and gives the whole thing to his head and his feet and then uses her own body to, to wipe off the residue on his feet. This worship. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So imagine the smell, that little tiny house there in Bethany, just clouds of sweet-smelling nard. I mean, the rest of the week that Jesus walked around, there's no doubt he smelled like the nard. You don't just get that stuff off by taking a shower. I mean, he, this was costly and very aromatic, if you will. And so what does he say? Verse 9, truly I say, Whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about Mary. And listen, I I don't know when the world's going to end. Imagine if this is early church history. We think, man, election days in two weeks is going to be the end of the world. What if it goes on for another 2,000 years? 3,000 years, 4,000 years. And they're talking about 2020 as early church history. Still, this story will be told then. And my guess is, even in heaven, we're going to be like, hey, it's Mary. Remember the, the nard? She'll be like, yeah, I've, I've been talking about the nard for thousands of years now. <laughs> it's been thousands of years. I can't get away from the nard, right? Little joke to lighten up the situation. All right, let's move on. Let's go to 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, here's what's happening here. Judas sees this waste in his mind because some of that should have been mine right greedy thieves always see stuff that you have and think some of it should be theirs and so judas here is like this is crazy and then this talk about burial like i got to get something out of this situation and so in his mind he's had enough and he goes to the chief priests in order to betray jesus to them And they offer him some money. Now, don't miss the contrast. Mary gives a year's wage to Jesus. Judas is saying, how can I get a little bit off of Jesus for the sake of betraying him? And here we have a little bit more detail about how much he got. Matthew 26, 15. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, not even half the value of the perfume. So it was a bit substantial, but not, half, not even half a year's wage. 
to betray the one who has done nothing but good to him. And when they heard it, they were glad. What's their attitude? Fantastic. You're going to give us some secret location of him so we don't have to do this in public when there's uh, you know, 250,000 to 500,000 to a million people flooding Jerusalem who are looking for Jesus. You're going to sneak us in and we'll just take him stealthily. Fantastic. We're glad. If you do this for us, we will give you money. And now Judas, he is seeking an opportunity to do so. He's seeking an opportunity. So all this is going on in the background. Chief priests, scribes, looking to take Jesus. Judas, betraying him, but also looking for the exact moment. And Jesus himself understands what's about to happen because he even says to those grumbling about the nard, she's done a good thing. She's anointed me for burial. Now let's look at 12 to 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So it was a custom uh, of Jesus and the disciples to eat the Passover lamb and to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a normal thing they did every year. And while they were with him the previous years, they'd done this already. And so they're saying, hey, um, where do you want us to go so that we can celebrate this feast just like everyone else. And he sent, verse 13, two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now this is, this is amazing. So Jesus says, you look for the guy who's carrying the water pot. Now that's not significant to us, but in those days men did not carry water pots. So he would have been distinguished from the women who actually carried the water pots. So the first thing you're going to notice, guys, you're going to see this guy carrying a water pot. You follow that guy. And when he goes into the house, you follow him in. And when he enters, you say to the master of the house, the teacher says. Now, if the disciples are saying the teacher says, that means the teacher had probably already set this up in advance. Because think about it. You're in the city full of 500,000 plus people all looking for a place to celebrate this Passover. You think there's just going to be this giant vacant upper room? No. No, no. Jesus had more than likely, most assuredly, prepared this to happen. But he did know beforehand that the guy with the water pot on his head was going to walk in and you follow that guy and you say to the master of the house, the teacher, he was known as the teacher. The teacher says, where's my guest room? You know, the one I reserved. Where's my guest room? That I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So most likely this has been prepared by Jesus. It wasn't just this miraculous room that happened to be empty and he saw the guy in his mind's eye with the water pot and no. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. So the furnished and ready means that this was prepared by Jesus for this type of a meal. 
And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I want to bring 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8 here before we jump into the Last Supper meal. Let me read it for you. The context here is the man uh, in, in the Corinthian church had an illicit relationship that not even the pagans had. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he was like, Paul's like, this is crazy. Not even the pagans do this kind of stuff. And you're boasting about it as if you're tolerant. That's what Paul's upset about. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now remember, this is the feast of what? Unleavened bread. Leaven symbolizes sin often in the Bible. And so even in the Exodus Passover, which they're going to celebrate the Passover feast, they're to eat unleavened bread. The leaven symbolizes sin all through the Bible. Now Paul does use it in a neutral way also, but most of the time, leaven is equivalent to sin. And so the ancient Jews at Passover before the Exodus were to purify themselves and by symbolically purifying themselves, take out the leaven. And so Paul uses this leaven illustration for the Corinthians. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin that you're tolerating is going to infect the whole church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Get rid of the sin. Do church discipline is actually what he's saying. As you really are unleavened, you are already without sin because you're a Christian. Now, do what you are. You see that? He's not saying... You need to cleanse out the leaven so that you'll be accepted. No, he's saying you're accepted and clean. Now act like it. Live like you actually are. Live out the reality of who you are as a, as a forgiven, regenerate disciple. And then look at this. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore, in light of that sacrifice, celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So even Paul here, as, as a faithful old Pharisee converted to Christianity, missionary church planter, he uses this Passover celebration to illustrate how we as the church should intentionally purify ourselves from sin. But look, he says, let us celebrate the, the festival, not talking about the actual uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover Lamb, but rather celebrating by getting rid of our evil ways, malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So you have sincerity and truth, do away with malice and evil. So even Paul is picking up on what's about to happen here, the Last Supper. So let's read it. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, so there's that reclining, lean back on a pillow type of, of chilling. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Judas is here. Remember, he's looking for an opportunity to betray him. He's already been commissioned by the chief priests and the scribes to do so. And he's just, he's waiting for the opportunity. But Jesus says, listen, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him after one another, Is it I? Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve. It's one of you. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so, notice verse 21 there. The Son of Man, referring back to Daniel chapter 7, the one who inherits a kingdom from the Ancient of Days, he must be betrayed. What does that mean? As it was written of him. I'm referring back to the Psalms. This means that this is the plan of God. And Jesus knows it. So as he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. As it is written, this has to go down just as it was written in the Psalms. This has to happen. And so therefore, listen, friends, God is in control of this whole event. Clearly. If we didn't have to point out the, the similarities between the Exodus, Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all pointing to Jesus, which we'll open that up in just another minute here, but also it being written and prophesied about him that one of his own who dipped the bread in the cup with him, that specific, would be one who betrayed him. One who had such table fellowship with him that he was in the inner disciple ring. And yet his heart, even being so close to Jesus in one sense, was so far away from Jesus in another. And I can't help but now just warn you very quickly that you could be very close to Jesus in an outward way, as Judas was. Right? And if you say, no, no, no. Look, Judas was with him for three years, saw the miracles, had the power of God flowing through him. I would argue in a Hebrews 6 kind of way, he tasted the power of God and yet still walked away and betrayed him friends you can be around christian things your whole life and around the church and if you will physically next to jesus or next to somebody who has jesus living on the inside of them by the holy spirit and yet not have jesus on the inside of you and i understand that there are friends many of us have sensitive conscience and we we struggle with the surety and we wonder am i saved and if i was saved why would i do the things i do and say the things i say and you know what i want to say to you if that's what you're saying to yourself look away from yourself and look to the savior who alone can save you you cannot save yourself there's nothing you can do you cannot clean up your life you cannot unleaven yourself when Paul mentions taking out the leaven, it's because you're already unleavened. Notice that? So friends, look away from yourself to the only one who can save. As it's been said, every one look at self, take ten looks at Jesus. And the more you look to Him for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. But if you're constantly looking within to see Am I? Am I not? Well, your motives do tell on you and your actions do tell on you. By your fruit, you shall know them, Jesus said. However, the, if you look at your fruit and it's not good, the answer is not, i got to bear some fruit. No, the answer is look away from yourself to the Savior, the only one who can save. Ask for mercy and grace. Ask for Him to save you. Ask for Him to give you the gift of repentance and He will show up. Let's move on. So it has to go this way, verse 21. The Son of Man goes as it was written. But, but, now here's the human responsibility. Woe, curse, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now this is hard for us to do. We are an either or type of people. So either it was written beforehand and it's absolutely 100% predestined 
and Judas is not responsible, or it's not predestined and Judas could have not betrayed him and it could have gone a different way. But listen, the Bible knows both to be true, 100%. So 100% God is in control of this situation and it must go this way. And 100% Judas is in control of his choice and chose to go this way. And I understand that's troubling for us. But this is the mystery, listen to me, the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Don't ever fall into the hyper-Calvinistic trap of, if God is sovereign, then it doesn't matter what I do. Because my actions and my attitudes and my words and my motives don't matter. We are not fatalists. No, your actions, your motives, your desires, your plans all matter. 100%. And yet, mysteriously, God is in control even of the very smallest details of your day. Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Meaning, lot casting was an ancient way of throwing dice to get a decision from God. Every lot that is cast, it turns up exactly how God wants it to turn up. And it can't be another way. So friends, we as Americans, at least on this side of eternity, have to be able to rest in the mystery. The mystery is, God, you're 100% in control. Just as it was written, it had to be. But at the same time, woe to that man. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, better for that man if he had not been bored. Now, I can't resist this. This also shows God's ability to see contingencies. Okay? What is a contingency? A contingency of, is what it would have been under different circumstances. So not only can God see all that is from every choice that's made and be in sovereign control of all of it, he is also in control of every choice that could have been under different circumstances, and he knows all that too. If he wasn't in control and have full knowledge of contingencies, then how can he say it would have been better if this other alternative reality would have been true? God is massive and in control and a being of intellect and wisdom and sight that you can't imagine that I can't imagine. Knowing all contingencies, yet who himself is not contingent. <laughs> It's amazing. This is our God, friends. And so, does He not deserve our songs and our devotion and our time and our energy and our talents and money, etc.? All right, we got to move on and we're not going to finish. And as they were eating, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. So this is the famous taking the bread, breaking it, symbolizing His body. And, and He says to them, take, this is my body. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the old covenant promised a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and other places, there is this new covenant 
relationship that God's people are going to have with Him. And no longer will someone say to their neighbor, Know the Lord, for they all will know Me from the least of them to the greatest. There will be a day when the heart of stone will be taken out and a heart of flesh will be inserted and a new spirit will be given under this new covenant. And My Spirit will be given under this new covenant. And I will cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to keep all of my laws. You see, this is new. This covenant in Jesus' blood is something that Moses didn't know about, that Abraham didn't know about, that Isaac and Jacob and all the Old Testament saints, Noah and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they didn't know this covenant, friends. They didn't know the new covenant like you know. So friends, you have a tremendous advantage to be living in our day and age and be in the new covenant. Now, you might not feel it every day. You're like, man, if I was in this new covenant, surely I would be able to feel it, right? Like, you feel like you should wake up and the Holy Spirit should be like beaming from your eyes like light as you wake up in the morning. You know, that's, I want that kind of new covenant. Well, that's not the kind of new covenant you're in. The kind of new covenant you're in is you have the ability to be free from the sin that so easily entangles you. You have the ability that the the cage of sin that was once locked is now open and you are free to walk out. This is the new covenant. I will cause them to walk in my ways. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, I will give them love for me. You have the ability. Listen, if you look inside and you say, there's no love inside of me for God and for others. You know what Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says? There's coming a covenant where I will put my love in them. And if you say, that sounds strange. The fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first one? Love. The Holy Spirit produces even the love that God requires of us. The Holy Spirit produces the love that's required in the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so therefore, if you're like, I I got no love, my tank is empty, what do you do? You have not because you ask not, my friends. You're in the new covenant. You ask and you shall receive. You seek and you will find. You knock on that door until it opens, friends. Because God gives what He commands in the new covenant. And this is the new covenant in my blood. And they all drank it. They all drank it. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew. So there's four cups of wine being drunk by each person in this celebration. Now, I don't know how potent the wine was. Surely it wasn't Hennessy quality alcohol. You know, they're not after this stumbling out to the Garden of Gethsemane after their four cups of wine. It was probably a little less potent than our wine, but they are drinking the wine that symbolized the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. This is the new covenant, not in the blood of oxen and bulls and goats of the old covenant under the law of Moses. No, this is the new covenant, and I am the fulfillment of all the animal Old Testament sacrifices. And Jesus says, look, I'm going on a fast from wine until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. And so some of you are purposefully non-alcoholics, meaning you don't drink any alcohol. And and if you're one of those person, I'm with you. I made a vow to God in 1999 and I don't drink any. I drink no alcohol, okay? I'm not more righteous than people who do. I'm not less righteous uh, in the opposite way. However, 
I will be drinking someday with Jesus in the kingdom of God. You best believe that's going to be the best wine any of you have ever tasted. This wine will outdo Lemieux's wine cellar. You know, Mario Lemieux has a huge, vast array of wine. Uh, And so the wine that we're going to enjoy with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth is going to put the, the best connoisseur's wine to shame in our day. And we got to move on. Last set of verses, we're done. And when they had sung a hymn, a, a traditional Jewish Seder, they would sing a hymn and psalms at the end. When they went out to the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, so this must take place, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, predicting his resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I will not fall away. Even if all these punks betray you, not me. I'm your man. I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, tonight Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. We'll learn about that next week. I'm not going to steal the thunder for next week. But he said emphatically, so Peter's like, no, 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 no. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And right behind him, they all said, us too. If we have to die, we're with you to the very end. And no, no, actually it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And one account, you know, one of them has this linen Uh, cloth on and one of the soldiers or chief priests or servants grabs the cloth and he runs away naked he's like i gotta get up he's (laughs) they're out i'm out peter's out you know they're gone because they're fearful for their life now let's end it here friends we're going to celebrate the symbol of what this reality points to Okay, so, so the communion brothers can, can get the elements and start passing them out as I speak here for just a moment. This, if you will, culmination of all of the Passover festivals is finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. All of the old covenant sacrifices that were being done for century after century after century are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And as we exercise faith in the Word of God, which is the Gospel, we receive by grace through faith the blood of the Lamb applied to our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says this bread that's been celebrated since the exodus this unleavened bread actually is about me my body broken this wine this cup of the new covenant finds its fulfillment in me the passover lamb of exodus and of isaiah 53 finds its fulfillment in me friends it's all about jesus and friends here It's all about Jesus, but it's for you, and it's for me. 
And as our love for Jesus, because of what He's done for us, grows, do you know what will also grow? Your desire to walk with Him, your desire to keep His commands, and your desire to spread His love to other people. And so, if you find yourself cold tonight, which I find myself cold often, I'll be honest with you, the the zeal wanes, it ebbs and flows. The passion for Christ and His kingdom and for other people to know Him, it, it gets cold and you have to warm it up. Friends, this is an opportunity for you right now as we sing this last song, Before the Throne of God Above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You have an opportunity to meet with God in a very real way right now. Now in our tradition, we don't believe that when, when we do this, that the body and the blood actually turns in some mystical way to the body and blood of Jesus. But what we do believe is that when the church of Jesus Christ corporately celebrates communion together, God shows up. And so we don't take this lightly. Your opportunity to meet with God is now. And so maybe you need to ask Him, Oh God, I, I, I am in this new covenant. This body broken, this blood shed is for me. Warm my heart for you. Give me the assurance that I lack. Give me the love for people that I lack. Give me the love for you that I lack. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit to obey your commands like you said those in the new covenant would have. God knows what you need, and I think He's letting you know what you need. So let's ask Him, and let's trust that He's going to show up and give us what we need. So we're going to, I'm going to back off the stage here, and as I do, we're going to sing.